Well, we want to continue our study, and this is a big transition Sunday for us in our study. Uh, we are we have finished up a, most of Christ's uh, sermon, if you will. They really started back in chapter 11 with the woes to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. It went into chapter 12, and we have some attention drawn to those who name the name of Christ, who claim to be his disciples. We have the engagement regarding the sins that we can get caught into very easily that can be very, not just disruptive to our faith, but destructive to our faith. And we looked at those of what true hypocrisy was and is to this day in God's eyes. It is not saying one thing and doing another thing, but rather doing all the right things without the fear of God, without a true relationship with Jesus Christ. We looked at the sin of covetousness that we can easily get caught up into. We saw Christ condemn that. The sin of faithlessness that we also saw exemplified in the example of the four servants, only one of which would receive his reward with joy, without tears. We then saw the division that would come because of him. And then, of course, last week, we looked at the very strong words regarding uh, the caution that we must have at looking at others as worse sinners than ourselves. So somehow we are immune to these things, and therefore we are off the hook in terms of Christ's whole sermon. And so we have come now to another Sabbath and just about his last one on earth um, in, as uh, Son of Man. He's, if you recall, he is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way really to his crucifixion. And he is traveling from community to community. And he comes to this very possibly one of his last Sabbaths, his last Sabbath recorded for us here until his death in the Gospel of Luke, at least. And we find um, him entering the synagogue as a recognized teacher and performing ministry. And we're going to see a transition that we are familiar with very well. Because it's not really a transition, not a change from him, but rather it is this um, two sides of the ministry of Christ that we need to be attentive to. And we often think that if one side is there, that the other side can't be, um, and vice versa. And we're going to see a great contrast here that uh, hopefully we'll bring into our hearts and into our lives and into our church's ministry as well. Before we do that, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity, again, to look into your word. And we do pray that your spirit might have control during this time particularly. Uh, Lord, we need your illumination to understand your word as you would have us to this morning. Lord, we also need your uh, conviction that having understood it, that we might be willing to let it impact our lives with such power that it would change us. We recognize that this is your Spirit's work, but that it is necessary for us to respond to your Spirit's work by faith believing by simple obedience. And Lord, we pray that we might have such humility in us today that would find us in such a place. And then, Lord, that you might guard us also this morning from opinion or error of men, that we might uh, hear your truth today, recognize it and discern it as such, and respond as we should. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what are the two sides of, these, of this coin that need to be in every ministry? Well, you've had one side of it, really, for the last few weeks. And that is a very strong, direct, and in-your-face kind of preaching. We would look at that, and we, growing up in my generation at least, we began probably making fun of in my generation first. I don't know that that was really something that was prevalent earlier than that, making fun of what we call hellfire preaching, a pulpit pounding and yelling and screaming and jumping up and down. And I credit Hollywood with some of that um, 
where we are looking down upon that kind of preaching. But we have Christ coming in on the scene with very strong, what we would consider negative, although God, as we saw last week, doesn't see it as negative. He's trying to save your life. But we would view that as very negative preaching of calling down woes on people, of warning people about their own sinfulness and the tendencies of sin, of calling people to examine their own lives and essentially calling them, you're as bad a sinners as what's out there, so get it straightened out. And we would look at that and we'd say, well, that's pretty negative preaching. And that's really not why I want to go to church. I want to go to church to feel better about myself, um, which is also a fairly modern phenomenon as well. I just want to throw that out at you. In the past, you expected to go to church and to be convicted, knowing that the end result would be your well-being, not your well-feeling. And it's a dangerous thing when you go out feeling well when you're not well. Okay? Um, when I'm sick, I prefer to feel bad so that I know something's wrong inside of me. I really, so I can address it. And sin, of course, is the ultimate disease of man. It needs to be addressed. Well, that has to be happen. And for the last several weeks, you've had that kind of preaching because that's what we've been studying is Christ's preaching on sin and what it is and the warnings that are there and the instruction that is here for us. And uh, it's taken to heart for many of you, and it's impacted our church, I think, very powerfully in the last six to seven weeks. We now come into the balance point. And uh, we have seen the balance point previously, but we didn't recognize it as such because we hadn't come into this kind of strong teaching uh, to this degree. We come now, and the Sabbath comes up. Christ has been preaching. We come now to this Saturday event, and we find him uh, not a mean person, not a, a, a harsh person but rather we find him a compassionate person. And this is the balance point. The truth must be taught with power. It has to be taught boldly. It has to be taught confrontationally. But none of those things give permission for it to be taught harshly, to be taught without love. And so Christ comes here at the conclusion of this very powerful sermon series, if you will, and he comes in on the Sabbath day, and we don't find him getting ready to just lay into people, but rather he comes there, and compassion becomes the beginning driving aspect of his ministry. Look with me in verse 10. It says, now he's teaching on the one, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And so he's been in an itinerary ministry. We're not told exactly where he is at this point, how close he is to Jerusalem, but he is on his way there. Behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. And so he saw this gal crippled. Um, we don't know how old she was. We know how long she's been in that condition. So she's been in that condition for 18 years. Luke describes this as a spirit or breath of infirmity that's been upon her. This is someone who has come to the synagogue on the Sabbath to do the same as what Jesus was there to do, is to worship. She had been coming to that synagogue, apparently, for 18 years. The evidence is that everyone there knew her. Everyone there knew what she was there, uh, that she was there every Sunday, or I'm sorry, every Sabbath, every Saturday. That she was there as a regular part, that they understood her infirmity, and they saw her faithfulness. And here she comes into the synagogue. Christ sees her and is moved with compassion for her. And this is the foundation, the root of all godly ministry. And don't think that the idea that he heals here and doesn't say woe to here means that, that he's uh, schizophrenic. Right? They are the same. The move to minister, to call people vipers when they're vipers, to call people unfaithful when they're unfaithful, to call people hypocrites when they're hypocrites, which he's going to do here, by the way, again, uh, is not driven out of a meanness, but out of a genuine love, a moved by compassion. For it is until we have a confrontation with sin that we can ever really deal with it. It's out of compassion 
he has been preaching, and now we see what we often associate with the other, with compassion, and that is caring for felt needs. Verse 12. We saw our condition was for 18 years. It was well known. We do not find her approaching him, nor do we find him approaching her. He calls out across the room. And here's what he says. He says he called her to him. First thing he says is, come here. It's not recorded, but he calls her to her. You, over there, come here. Now, remember what this gal is like, right? What's her infirmity? She's like this. She's twisted up, and, her, and, and it says that, that she was bent over, no way raised herself up. And, and you think, well, no, if Christ was really compassionate, he would go to her. No, he says, calls her to him. Come here. He would say, oh, man, why is he going to embarrass this lady? Why is he going to make her walk up to him? Because you see, the first step to Jesus Christ is obedience. The, the, the exercise of faith is one of obedience. And here she is, she's going to obey him. Is it easy for her? No, but she made it there. Um, it is something that she is capable of doing. He doesn't ask us to do the impossible. He does the impossible. He asks us to do the reasonable. She made it to the synagogue. She could certainly make it across the room to him. So she calls, he calls out to her, calls her to him, and then says something to her and says, Woman, I don't know your, I don't know your name. Isn't that great? I love that part. Just, woman, you're loosed. You're free. You're freed from this infirmity, from the spirit of this infirmity. And it says that uh, he laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made straight and glorified God. We go, oh, now there's finally a compassionate Jesus. No, this is still the compassionate Jesus. Jesus was still compassionate at the end of the last message when he said, hey, watch out, you're just as bad as sinners as those sinners. He was just as compassionate when he said, watch out for covetousness, which is idolatry. He was just as compassionate when he said, hey, watch out, because many stripes are going to be given on the day of the Lord. Be careful you're not among the recipients of those as a disobedient Christian. And he was just as compassionate when he said, watch out uh, for hypocrisy in your life. And he was just as compassionate when he said, woe to you. All of those the exercise of compassion. We look at this exercise of it, and we go, oh boy, now there's a compassion Jesus, finally. But he's been compassionate all along, because that is the foundation of real ministry. And we have so, in our minds, in our culture, divorced these two concepts. That discipline of our children is something different than loving our children. And I see young parents say, oh, I'm going to love my children, so I couldn't bear to do that to them. The only one you're loving when you refuse to discipline your children is yourself. You're not loving them because you're doing them no favors. You're destroying their life, the Bible says. You are ruining them. Out of this false concept of love apart from discipline. And so... The idea that somehow this is an exercise of God's love and the whole message before was not an exercise of His love is really very foreign to Scripture. And so we have an exercise of compassion that we identify as compassion, and yet that has been the root of all of this all along. Well, some might contend that Christ did this on purpose just to stir up an argument. I don't know anybody who's ever been accused of that in my life. <clears throat> Some people actually accuse me of that. Can you believe that? Of being ordinary just to get something going. Um, did Christ have a good idea of the heart of some of the people there, particularly one person? I am certain. Was that going to be on the agenda for the morning activity? Yes. But that doesn't diminish the purpose and power of what he did in her life. That she was able, 
by walking across a room in her bent-over state look, and, and having Christ tell her, you're loosed and, and putting his hands on her of glorifying God. And so here's this gal for 18 years who has been in this condition, stands up straight, is glorifying God, and there's somebody over in the corner going like this. Got a scowl on his face. His arms are crossed, unless he's in India, because this means I agree with you in India. Weird, isn't it? United States, cross your arms means just try. Well, there he is. And all these girls got their arms crossed. Are you all <laughs> now I said that. I just looked over here and all three, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Not Giselle, good girl. There's a guy over there in the corner who's mad, who's upset, who's disgruntled. And Christ is going to address this. And you might look at this and say, well, he's going to address it pretty harshly. He's going to just address it boldly and forthrightly as should be expected by a man of God who is driven in his ministry by compassion. And so he sees this woman and she is in a circumstance where she is able to glorify God and in the midst of this congregation, if you will, glorifying God, the ruler of the synagogue is indignant. His response is, Humph, this shouldn't be going on. How dare these people be happy? Why are they not allowed to be happy on this great occasion of healing? Why? Because it's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to be happy on the Sabbath, apparently. No. Because... You see, his concept of what the Sabbath was for was just violated. Because, you see, his ministry as ruler of the synagogue wasn't driven by love, by the same compassion that Christ has been preaching and ministering for all these years already. The preaching and the, and the compassion and love that Christ had to move him to say, Woe to you Pharisees, teachers of the law and scribes. The, the compassion that moved Christ to preach and to speak to his disciples, saying, watch out for hypocrisy in your life. The movement to speak to the multitude and say, hey, watch out for covetousness. It's going to destroy your ability to seek after the kingdom of God. God will take care of you and your needs. The, this compassion that moved in this kind of ministry and moved into the healing of this woman was not foundation of the ruler of the synagogue's ministry. He could not bring himself to rejoice over the powerful working of God in this gal's life. And what is it that tied his hands? Why? Why couldn't you rejoice when this gal's rejoicing, when the congregation's rejoicing, when all the people are gathered together glorifying God? What is tying your hands from joining in? A lack of compassion, certainly but it's driven by a legalistic approach to worship and to the expectation of God. You see, I'm confident that for years, as ruler of the synagogue, he has declared the necessity of keeping the Sabbath. He's declared what that means, and he's defined it, and he's going to go further to define it on this day. He rightly says, there are six days on which men ought to work. That's correct. That's what the Bible says. There are six days on which men ought to work. There really are. But we all know from the Old Testament there are exceptions to that, aren't there? We know that the tribe of Levi was off the hook on that. The priests work every Sabbath. They work extra. On the Sabbath, they had extra duty to do. We also see other uh, exceptions throughout Scripture, and Christ even quotes some of them in his ministry life. And we, we see uh, then also a definition, a redefinition of what is work. And that was the big, big question. You see, when we start to define terms, that becomes issue. And who do we go to for those? We go to the ruler of the synagogue, define work. You see, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath shall rest on the Sabbath, keep it holy. What does that mean? And the Pharisees by this time, the, and the synagogue rulers, and they had developed an extraordinary, uh, extensive 
description of what is and is not work that you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And so they described the number of footsteps that you could take on a trip and not be work. Once you took a trip longer than that, you were working and you were violating the Sabbath. They designated certain jobs that you could do and others that you can't. And by the way, if you travel to Israel today and you get there on a Sabbath, it's the same thing today. What are we allowed to do today? Well, you're allowed to go to tourist things and... uh, do some interesting things. But one of the things you're not allowed to do in Israel on the Sabbath is if you're at a hotel with a group and your group leader wants to use a video projector, that's not permitted on the Sabbath because that's work. Using a video projector on the Sabbath in Israel is work and you're allowed to do that. So here we had this big meeting scheduled and he had nothing (laughs) because he was totally dependent upon his PowerPoint. Because that was work. And he, he was just, I didn't realize that was work. Um, pushing an elevator button in Israel on the Sabbath is work. So on Saturdays, in every building with elevators, one elevator is dedicated for the Sabbat elevator. What does that mean? It means it stops at every floor and opens the door so you don't have to push the button. See, it's not wrong to use the elevator. It's wrong to push the button to use the elevator. Okay? I want us to understand that this is nothing foreign to Israel today. This is exactly what Israel would be contending today. What defines work? What can we do and what can't we do? So apparently it's okay to drive the tour bus on a Saturday, but it's not okay to push the button at the elevator on the Saturday. Figure that one out. So here's the ruler of the synagogue with this ruling. You have six days you can get healed. Get healed. Go get healed on those days. Don't come here and get healed on this day. We might look at that and say, oh, what a harsh, critical person. Yes. Because compassion and true godly love was not the foundation of his ministry, but rather his place of rulership and the law was the foundation of his ministry. You see, when we lose the foundation of what true godly love is, we have two extremes that we're going to tend towards. We're always going to move to one of those two extremes. We are either going to move to this extreme that we see exemplified here, of this legalistic approach to ministry that has to be done just so, and if you don't do it like we say, then how dare you try to glorify God? You're going to have that pull towards that tendency. Without godly love as the foundation of ministry, the other way you're going to go is into worldliness, which is what Christ has just gotten done telling us not to, where we have liberty with, with no conscience. We have, we, have, we have no right and wrongness to anything. And this Christ has warned us against as well, that we just go off and we conform ourselves to the world. God calls us to a balanced ministry, and that balance requires us to have lo- godly love, true, biblical, compassionate love as the foundation of ministry. Once it is there... We can preach strong messages and we can perform compassionate acts out of the same foundation. And we can do it all to the glory of God. At a camp I spoke at in Arizona years ago, we had two junior high girls. Junior high girls are dangerous characters. I'm sure they were both 13. Because 13-year-old girls are of some other species than human. I've told you that before. And so I'm the camp speaker. And this is about the fourth message, I think, of the week. And uh, they come up to me afterwards. And um, they want to help me a little bit. Because junior high girls are good at that. Helping us all understand reality. And this is their statement today. You know, you're so much fun out there in the game floor. Why do you have to preach like this? 
we go out there and play and you're all and you're fun and everything and, and we love having you at camp, but you preach like this and it makes us feel uncomfortable. And I said, What do you mean you feel uncomfortable? Well you make it sound like we're all sinners. I'm like, I win. <laughs> Good. But you see, they didn't like that. They didn't want strong, powerful preaching, which tells me something is that the church they came out of, they'd never heard it before. This is a church with a program that was sending them to a scholarship camp, a WANA program, which apparently these girls had never heard. Someone called him a sinner. And that's a concern of mine. So we say, well, can you preach strong messages? You have to preach strong messages if your foundation is love. You have to. If it's true godly love, you have to. Just like in parenting, if you really love your children, you have to discipline them. You have to. It's your job. But do you also feed them, care for them, change their diaper, Nurture them, nourish them. Yes, you have to. Why? Because your foundation is love. And this man's foundation wasn't godly love. And therefore, he is rightly called a hypocrite. This is what God calls him with the emphatic. And in your text, you'll find the Exclamation point, I think, after the word hypocrite. Why? This is a guy who is following the law. He was the ruler of the synagogue, and in God's eyes, he was the greatest hypocrite in the room because he could not bring himself to glorify God in the midst of the work of God. Here's God actively doing something in his synagogue, and he can't glorify God because in his mind, he has convinced himself that that shouldn't be done on this day. And so God, so God it is God. Lord's going to take him to task, and He's going to take him to task not only by calling him a name. Um, it's a right name. It's what he is. Um, but then showing him from his own concept, from his, probably his own teaching of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, um, to show him how foolish and how hypocritical his position is. Look at it very quickly. Does not each or one of you, including you, Mr. Leader of the Synagogue, on the Sabbath, loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? Now, the implied answer to this is yes. They all did it. Why? Because this is one of those things that was decided, was that this doesn't equal work. And so if you go out to your barn where you're, donkey or outside your house or wherever where your donkey and other animals are all tethered up and you untether them and take them over so they can have water, that is not considered work. You need to water your animals every day. So, Sazam, that's not work. Great. So you're allowed to loosen the tether on your animal and move them over and water them on the Sabbath and you do not consider that work. So, let me take your definition of work. As skewed as it is, as man-made as it is, let me take your definition of work and apply it to what just happened here. Isn't that great? I'm going to take your definition and I'm going to use it. If you're allowed to do it for an ox or a donkey, why can't I lose a person? This woman has been bound. And the way Christ speaks this is just incredible. Um, This gal comes in here bound by this infirmity. She is tied up with it. She is is injured from it. And and she's coming here seeking to, to be ministered to and to minister Satan has bound her for 18 years. Isn't it right to loose her on any day, and maybe even particularly the Sabbath? Based upon your own law, to be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. You loose your animals from their bonds on the Sabbath. Why can't we loose 
a person from their bonds on the Sabbath. You see, Christ could very easily go into an extensive talk about defining work and, and what God meant by it, and we could go into that discussion, and we can get into the legal you know, eyes being dotted and T's crossed. And, and we could get, he could have gone in into that. He could have talked about, well, here's the spirit of the law, the way God gave it. But he didn't do that. This is what he did. You hypocrite! Let me tell you what you're all. All right, here's what you say. You say you're unbutting your animal and you can do this on the Sabbath. Well, here, this is what I just did. Is it any different? And he just takes him to hold on. He takes his version of the law, the man's version of the law, and says, even with that, you condemn yourself. Because of the inconsistencies. Where do these inconsistencies, these unbalanced ministries come from? They come from a source that isn't godly love and compassion. Was Christ here trying to throw out everything that the law meant for the Jewish community? No. But He's trying to show them the inconsistencies that in the keeping of this law, they were inconsistent in it in its application. And so, the foundation is established. The adversaries to Christ, and there were more than one, he says there in verse 17, which means that the ruler of the synagogue might have been the spokesman, but there were others who were just as disgruntled as him in the corner, gnashing their teeth about people glorifying God in the synagogue on Saturday. That's right, they were upset about that. But they had nothing to say because their own law condemned them. Their own version of the law condemned them. When we encounter the world and, and when it comes into the church, and it does, it, it, there's just no way we can claim, I don't care how small a church we are, I don't care how pure we say we are, uh, we just can never claim that the world never filters into the church. It just does. And we begin getting... Uh, human philosophies, human concepts, um, and, and we intermingle it with our faith and what the Bible says. We're all guilty of that, and it is the work. One of the primary things I try to do is to divorce that in my mind and to, and to root out the stuff that's coming from my um, history and from my culture and, and to try to... Uh, fill up that void with, with what Christ would have there. Um, but when the, church come, when the church has the world coming into it, and we begin to fashion these concepts of what does and doesn't glorify God apart from His Word, we're always going to run unbalanced. Because when the world infiltrates, its foundation is not godly, sacrificial love. The foundation of the world is self-love. The foundation of the world um, is always going to run in opposition to God's Word. The foundation of your old nature is always going to run contrary to godly love and ministry. And so we must rightly always be on our guard for this. That we could easily get trapped in the same attitude as the ruler of the synagogue. We can condemn him freely and say, that's silly how that can happen. Yet just such silly things occur even to this day in churches. When we run unbalanced ministries because we're listening to the world, we're listening to ourselves instead of to God's Word. Because the foundation is not a godly love, but self-interest. You see, in self-interest, and I can cloak this, I can cloak this very easily with very high-sounding things that sound like I love everybody, but in self-interest, we, we have people drawing great crowds and we know how to do it. Give them what they want. They want entertainment, give them entertainment. They want activities, give them activities. They want bowling alleys, we'll give them bowling alleys. Um, they want Broadway productions, we'll give them Broadway productions. Robert should tell me about that this morning. They, they want this, then we'll get them in there. And again, is this a compassion-based ministry? They even call it that sometimes. 
These are compassion ministries. Are they really when you're not willing to walk up to them and say, you're going to hell because you're a sinner and you need a Savior? If we rob them of a mess, the only message of hope in the world, can we really claim to be love-driven ministries? No. We're being driven by self-interest. See, a love-driven ministry is willing to say the truth, and they might hate us for it, but we're going to tell them the truth. We're going to do it in a loving, compassionate manner, and sometimes, apparently, that means saying hypocrites loud and pointedly. Sometimes that's saying woe to you. Sometimes that's saying watch out. And sometimes that's saying be loosed. Now, we all wish it would be the be loosed all the time. Fact is, it's not the standard. So we find that at the culmination of this powerful preaching ministry, Christ comes into the synagogue, loosens this gal. People are not happy about it. This gal is healed and glorifying God, and those with her I'm certain of. It says that his adversaries were put to shame. They were like, oh, yeah, I guess. I guess we're allowed to treat humans as good as animals. Something I wish some people would know today. Apparently you can do injury to men and not spend much time in jail. But if you do injury to your animal, you're going to jail for the hilt these days. Can you believe that? What's with that, Kelly? Lawyer want to be? Who else a lawyer want to be? You know, we're not that far off from these in our culture today that we're more concerned how you treat your animal than your, hum, your fellow human. Um, when the world infiltrates the church, it will always unbalance her and it will always seek to depose her from her foundation of what godly, sacrificial, unselfish love is. What did the multitudes do in response? Well, they always like it when those people that have been browbeating them for years over keeping the Sabbath get put in their place. But they've also recognized that truth has been taught. The power of God has been evidenced in their midst. Truth has been taught. And what is the end result? It says the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by Him. And so they're just rejoicing that there's this general sense of joy. Well, He just got done calling someone a hypocrite, showing him how wrong he was, being very bold and forthright in this, very confrontational, if you will. But yet the multitudes rejoice because therein is the power of the truth. Is that it does not vary. It doesn't matter whether you're dealing with a guy who wants his inheritance, his part of the inheritance, whether you're dealing with the poor, whether you're dealing with a crippled woman, or whether you're dealing with the ruler of the synagogue, truth does not vary. And if God's word and the compassion of Christ is the foundation of our ministry, then it will not vary. It doesn't matter. The condition or the state or the, or, of the person that we're dealing with, we're going to minister to them the truth in love regardless. And the result should be rejoicing. Now, I don't know how many of you have been rejoicing for the last few weeks over the messages you've been hearing about hypocrisy, about covetousness, about unfaithfulness, about sinfulness in our midst. Um, But you should. They should be cause for rejoicing. If they move us to deeper levels of righteousness, if they move us to a better relationship with God, if they, if they tear off the, the, the rags of self-righteousness off of us so that we can uh, be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, oh, there should be cause of rejoicing. If they mean that fewer stripes are going to be administered to me at the, at the coming of Christ, oh, we should be rejoicing. I've been convicted of this and now I have opportunity to live a a true faithful life before Christ and not just a a selfish life. There should be cause for rejoicing. For just as surely as this woman was loosed from her infirmity 
by His hands and His message, so spiritually can everybody be loosed from their spiritual infirmity by that message as He just got done speaking. Did you get the purpose? Unless you repent, you likewise shall perish. He's delivered her from her infirmity, but He's tried to deliver the multitude from their spiritual infirmity. And there should be cause of rejoicing for that. Yes, this physical healing is more evident. I mean, it's right there in front of you and you see it and you go, wow. But the spiritual healing is just as real. And may I contend, more important. And therefore should be cause for rejoicing. Well, this foundation is going to be, I believe, characterized by Christ in two quick accounts. Two quick parables. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Is it like Moses on Mount Sinai? With the Ten Commandments? You know, finger of God and all that? What's the kingdom of heaven like? Is it the way the ruler of the synagogue has been describing it? With him being in control? What's the kingdom of heaven like? Christ picks two interesting illustrations for the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we get into them, I want you to know that there are those, there's disagreement, believe it or not, there's disagreement over what he's trying to say here. Some people, uh, including some that I highly respect, some authors I highly respect, think that Christ is making some negative statements here. That... uh, you know, the kingdom of heaven is this great big tree and the birds that come and land in it are wicked people and that even a good tree, there's going to be some wickedness in it. I don't get that, okay? Because he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like the tree, does he? He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven um, in, the, in the second illustration is um, like the raised bread. And leaven, of course, is pretty consistently in Scripture referring to sin, and so most commentators want to use it that way, but I don't think Christ is using it here this way. I want you to look at what the kingdom of heaven is like, what it really says, and we're not going to extend beyond it. We just want to stop where, where the comma is. It is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like the mustard seed, very small. The kingdom of heaven is very small, Oh, at its beginning, it's very small. The outset, it is looks insignificant. It looks powerless. Godly love is the power of ministry. Compassion and ministry based upon truth and, and sacrifice, that's it. Little, little, little thing. Godly love is or like leaven. Not a lot, just a little bit. You got a huge lump, and the lump he describes here, by the way, is three measures of meal. Um, this is, uh, you don't know what a measure is. This, is. this is something you need a big old mixing bowl for. This is like a, this is like party size leaven, lumps, okay, of, of dough. This is a big old bowl. And so, here we go with um, this little ingredient in this big batch of dough. The kingdom of heaven isn't like the big batch of dough. It doesn't say that. It says it's like the leaven, the little ingredient. Why? What does this have to do with where, we're, where we've been and where we're going in, in terms of the message and work of Jesus Christ? Because it says that this is Christ's response. Then he said this, um, as the people were glorifying God and the work of in this gal, in the work of Christ. The uh, the work of the kingdom of God is unseen at first. The first thing we need to see, recognize, is that it's not evident at first as something significant. We might look at that and say, well, that's Interesting, um, but it's not significant. Pastor, is that really the most significant thing we have to learn today? 
is that we need to be ministering with a true compassion for people that moves us to not only do acts of compassion the world says are compassionate, but what the Bible says are compassionate, which is speaking the truth in love. Is that all there is? And it's, frankly, from the world's perspective, from our perspective, insignificant. We would much rather see a great big wall chart with here's the uh, the 10-year and 15-year and 20-year plan and here's our building and all of that and, and we have this... That's significant. Oh, boy, we got, we've got dreams. That's what it takes. And in most of the church growth books that I've been reading of late, and I can't read hardly any more of them, and articles that I've read, um, that's what they're talking about. That's going to drive ministry. Not what the kingdom of heaven's like. It starts with this little seed. Truth and love. Truth and love. Is that enough? Is that enough to build churches? Is that enough to change lives? Is that enough to be significant? The truth and love. The unseen, insignificant ingredient has disproportionately large, pervasive results. The small, small, small seed becomes this large tree. The man, of course, refers to God and puts it in his garden and it grows. And so this isn't a love that we produce, but rather a love that God places there. And when the kingdom of heaven and the the truth and love is planted in our hearts by God and we respond by faith believing it, there is a disproportionate result that should occur in us. This little, itty, bitty, small thing in man's eyes becomes this the driving force of our life and hopefully, by God's grace and mercy, the driving force of a ministry that can radically change lives. It'll be places of shelter, and I don't see the birds here as evil. I, I just don't see it. It's a place of shelter, a place of, of fear. It's a place of security. When there is a place of godly, truth and love ministry, it should be a place of deliverance, a place of safety. It should be all of those things, a place of provision spiritually, that should be occurring in our lives and in those that come and gather with us. All because now we have a grand master plan for our facilities. Now because we have a grand master plan, um, we're going to be at this size at this date and we're going to have these X number of ministries and we're going to have all this global outreach. No, because we have the truth and love, something that churches are just consistently ignoring. Because it's insignificant. Who wants to hear it? Woe is you. Don't be a hypocrite. Watch out. Covetousness is wrong. And you're as bad a sinner as the next guy. Those are very loving statements, all of them. Because they go to the root of solving the sin issues in our life. But the world and churches today look at that and say, Oh, you know, that's just not where growth is. That's not where it's at. They don't understand that these, the kingdom of heaven starts off with this very, from the world's perspective, very small thing. But God knows the result. The result is disproportionately pervasive. This little leaven suddenly affects the whole lump. This, this little seed provides this great tree. And we look at it and say, its seed is there. It is the seed that God needs to place in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the working of Jesus Christ, that when we accept Christ as our Savior, the love of God is placed in us. And when that bears fruit, it is disproportionate to our resources because it's to God's glory. Notice that. This little seed is planted. These messages are planted. And look at the end result. It's just one bent-over lady, for crying out loud. That's one bent-over lady. And now we've got a, a fight over here where he puts them in his place. But look at the end result. 
The end result is the multitudes glorified God. That's the end result. And that's our goal. If our foundation is right, the end result will be disproportionately large to what we put into it. Do not ever underestimate the power of doing things biblically, godly, and the extent of our ministry beyond what is visible in each other's lives, in the world, and certainly in God's eyes. We are called upon to minister out of compassion. And I pray that we are not ever find ourselves in the condition of allowing the world or ourselves to determine how that is done, but we might go to God's Word and continually press ourselves to live and minister as God would have us, which is... According to the truth in love. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to gather your name this morning. For your word here. And its instruction. Lord, our prayer, of course, is that you might guard us from unbalanced ministry. There is much appeal to it from a fleshly standpoint. Lord, our desire is that with this simple truth they will love as you have loved. You might reap a harvest and an effect that brings the multitudes to glorify you. Lord, we are not worthy of that end. We are not relying upon our own resources for that end. We trust your word toward that end. Lord, that we might be found glorifying your name for the message of hope and for the power of deliverance in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.